0: Well, this morning, um, we come to a word that we try to avoid. Death. Death is defined as the permanent, irreversible cessation of all biological functions that sustain a living organism. That's what's so hard about death. It's permanent and it's irreversible. We've heard three times in Matthew's gospel that Jesus is speaking about this idea of death. It was in chapter 16, 17, and 20. His words were that the Son of Man is going to Jerusalem to suffer at the hands of religious leaders and die. And on the third day be raised again. But despite being alerted to it, the disciples, just like us, they are ready for it. Death is just different. It's sting is real. It's bite is hard. And today this text is painful. It's hard to read. It's hard even more so to imagine Not only because Christ the innocent is dying in our place, but because I think it also announces that our worst fear is true. Our sin is really fatal. God will judge us. And we can't rescue ourselves. And yet into that moment walks the sinless Son of God. Dying in our place so that we might know that Jesus' death answers our greatest problem. And provides our greatest need. In other words, unless the Lord returns, you, me, your children, the people in the pew before you and behind you, they're all going to die. It's a real problem. But the Bible says that there's an answer for that problem. And it's Christ coming to die in our place. It answers our greatest problem, but it also provides our greatest need. The desire that we have to live forever, to be in the presence of God with no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, no more sin. Hallelujah. And it is all because of what Christ does for us. Today we'll be in Matthew 27, verses 45 through 61. And we're going to hear about how Jesus' death, I think, does three specific things. Jesus' death Defeat or deals with the judgment of god It destroys the barrier that's keeping us from god And jesus death is sufficient for the nations This morning as we pick up in matthew chapter 27. Remember where we've been Right. Jesus was there in the garden praying on that Thursday evening, and soon Judas shows up and betrays him with a kiss. He's handed off and he's brought before the Jewish leaders to be tried. And we heard about the sham of the trial. It was. And then last week we studied about his Roman trial there before Pilate. And we saw the injustice that Jesus was experiencing again and again. We saw the great irony in those moments. And then we heard the insults and the mockery on the cross. The story continues about Jesus there on the cross as we pick up in verse 45 as we wrestle with this first truth that Jesus' death deals with the judgment of God. Jesus' death in our place. He deals with the judgment of God that is against us. Listen to how it unfolds. Begin in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 27. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. So Jesus is on the cross here about three hours in now this situation. So he speaks about from about noon to 3 p.m. He says there's darkness over the entire land as Jesus is there on the cross. Why? It's a sign of judgment. It's God's declaration of what's happening here. It echoes the ninth plague of Egypt that brought total darkness upon the land for a period of three days. Why? Because Pharaoh refused to acknowledge that there was only one true living God. And Pharaoh was unwilling to let God's people what? go the truth is we can't escape the darkness ourselves we're trapped but there is an emancipator and his name is christ but for matthew this darkness it's it's a stark contrast compared to what we've seen in other key moments of Jesus' life think about this in matthew chapter 2 what we see is light it's a star that guides the way For these wise men, right, to come and find that there is a Messiah, a King of the Jews, who is Jesus. And then in Matthew 17, Jesus goes up on the mountain with the three, Peter, James, and John. It says he's transfigured before them, and it says that he shines like the sun. But when we come to the cross, there's no darkness. There's no light. There's only darkness. I think in this moment, it's a grim reminder to all of us about the truth of our sinful nature. We'll reject the light. We'll be, as Jesus said in John 3, we hate the light and we refuse to come into it because we fear that our evil deeds will be exposed. But the good news is, because we ourselves would never come into the light, Jesus came into the darkness to bring us out of the light. Hallelujah. This is the hope of the gospel And then from this moment comes these words that are, are, they surpass knowledge. These words are incomprehensible of what Christ says in verse 46, Matthew 27. Look what happens. And about the ninth hour, so in the midst of this darkness, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabach, Thani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cries out to his father again. You hear those words. It, you see it maybe Eli, Eli, right? Other translations or other, uh, this, other gospels recorded as Eloi, Eloi. It's maybe the words of a dying man that may be confused or or hard to understand. So they hear, Ailey, Ailey, and they think he's calling Elijah, Elijah. But in those moments, there's this mysterious truth about maybe some of the most mysterious words in the entire Bible are echoed here. Hard to understand. What does it mean when Jesus says these words that he says, my God, my God, why have you what forsaken me? It's it's puzzling to try to understand why, because consider the words of Matthew 11 and 27, Where Jesus said, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. And those to whom He chooses to reveal Him. In other words, Jesus and God know each other perfectly. There's just perfect intimacy. Why? Because there's no sin in their relationship. It's sin that drives out intimacy. I mean, remember back in the garden, Adam and Eve? Originally, they're both there naked and it says they're not ashamed. Intimacy is not an issue. But the moment that sin comes in. What do they do? They recognize their nakedness and they run and they hide. It breaks fellowship with one another and ultimately with God. But yet the reality is God, as Christ calls out here, my God, my God, he is God. Jesus, the son of God, God, the father, God, the son, God, the Holy Spirit. They've never had one moment in which there's ever been any brokenness in their relationship. Why? Because there's never been any sin Thus something here is indeed happening that surpasses knowledge, surpasses my understanding. Let's be honest with you. I can't comprehend what Jesus is crying out when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you deserted me? But maybe the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21 help us a little bit. Where Paul says that God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Why, Paul? He says, so that in Christ, you and I might become the very righteousness of God. It's an unbelievable moment. And notice this, though, what Matthew records. He says that Jesus, again, he cries out and he notices it with a loud voice. I think it's startling. Why? Because we've been studying Jesus walking with him to this very moment to the cross. And what's painstakingly at times like Jesus, defend yourself. He's just quiet. I mean, people are blaspheming him. People are insulting him. He's spit in the face. He's mocked with a crown of thorns. And yet he's quiet like a lamb before the slaughter. It's a sheep before her shears. He doesn't open his mouth. I think, what is it saying to us? I think it must reveal to us this moment of Jesus crying out with a loud voice about the true horror of our sin and the real cost of our salvation. I recently had an issue with my mower and I had to borrow my brothers and literally the first time i'm out mowing with that bad boy guess what happens to it what yeah it breaks you've been there you borrow things right and so in that moment right there's kind of really two options probably multiple options because of my brother but let's just minimize that down to two right the option is i can pay and get it fixed and give it back to him or he can say he can forgive me and say blake don't worry about it i'll take care of it but but if he does that then he's agreeing to bear the cost of my mistakes the truth is We've done a lot more than break God's mower, haven't we? In our sin, we've mocked His holiness. We've shook our self-righteous fist at Him and said, I'll do whatever I please lifestyle. And then we've trampled the blood of Christ with our do-it-now-and-ask-forgiveness-later attitudes. And yet, despite all of that, how does God respond? You read it earlier as we read together as a congregation, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He what? gave his only son he responds by seeing his son who lives a sinless life that we could never live who's then crucified in our place buried on the third day raised again to declare that you and i can be accepted before god not by works but by grace through faith This is the hope of the gospel. And Jesus in this moment is crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's bearing the weight of the wrath and judgment of God. Jesus dying this as we studied last week, the cursed death, because he isn't simply abandoned by his disciples, but now in some unimaginable way, Jesus and the Father, he's experiencing this sense of being forsaken. And why? Because he's coming our sin. Thus we come to the end of this moment and here in verse 50 and Jesus cries out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. I think it's Matthew showing us there this statement, yielded up his spirit to show us that Jesus was in control even in this moment of death on the cross. We don't have it recorded here, but Luke chapter 23, recording the same event, says to us in verse 46 that Jesus says, Father, into thy hands I commit what? My spirit. That's a reminder that in the darkest of moments, Jesus still continues entrusting himself to the Father. I think it has to compel you and I to trust him more, doesn't it? I mean, I know that there are some in this room, whether it's you or family members, that you are wrestling right now with major decisions. How will you handle jobs and vaccines? Some of you are wrestling with major relationship decisions right now. Which way should we go? We're at this seeming maybe impasse. What should we do here? Maybe that's, again, multiple ways. Some of you are wrestling with with financial moments in which you're trying to make decisions. Some of you are are wrestling with moments of you've got parents that you're they're aging and you're trying to figure out what's the next steps for them, could I just compel you in this moment, could I compel my own soul to follow the example of Jesus and in the hardest moments, moments, not to lean away from God, but to lean more, to trust Him more? I mean, don't we say it that we walk by faith and not what? By sight? Oh Lord, might we cry out, God, be a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. So here it is in this moment. Jesus is dealing, right? Being forsaken for us. As he suffers God's judgment, we come to the second truth that Jesus' death destroys the barrier keeping us from God. Jesus' death destroys the barrier keeping us from God. So we've just heard, just heard and seen God dies. What do you do with that? And in this moment, listen to the Lord. Listen to how the Father testifies and answers. Verse fifty-one of Matthew twenty-seven. And behold, like this, and behold, you could study it through Matthew's gospel. But those words come in like major moments. And behold, something unfolds. Something happens in response. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And studying this week, just different scholars and, and hearing their views on some really tough passages here in Matthew 27. I think one of the things that stood out to me was all the barriers that take place in the temple. I just had not really realize it until I was studying and reading. But notice what he says here about this barrier. There's a curtain. Notice it's in the temple. And notice what happens to that curtain. He says it's torn in two from top to bottom to indicate that God has done it. I want to show you just an image real quickly of the temple to maybe give you a glimpse of what's happening here. If you think about this, the reality is when you think about the temple, what you think about is barriers. I mean, the Gentiles are in this courtyard all around, right? They, they can't enter in. So you see that they're barrier. There's a separation. Then there's women, right? The women have the courtyard where they enter in, but they can only come so far. And then the men, you, you can't really see it here that much on this chart, but right here, they, they have this moment in which the men come a little bit further, but they also receive the stop sign to say only priest can come in here. And maybe you think, man, well, that's it. If you're just a priest, then you have a free pass. But the truth is, even as you see the priest's courtyard here and this area in which they operate, the truth is, the second image will show us, and I'll try to zoom in so you can see, that there's this large veil. In fact, the veil is about 60 feet high, 30 feet wide. Estimates are about four feet thick. It's massive. But behind that veil is this place called the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And and, and into that place, right, as you come in there in that place, the high priest would only come one time a year. On the Day of Atonement, the day is called Yom Kippur, and he would enter in there. And it's a reminder that even if you were a priest, there was barriers. And into this moment, guys, into this moment, the death of Christ, as this curtain is torn, this massive curtain from top to bottom, to say that no man could do this, this is a work of God, it says to us, guys, the temple has said no entry, no matter how many good works you've done, no matter how many years and days you've brought in your sacrifices, no matter how much the Bible you've memorized. in this moment, Christ's death, God, the father makes a declaration and as he tears the curtain and top from to, uh, top, tears it from top to bottom. And what's this saying to us? What's this mean for us? Look what Hebrews chapter 10, 18 to 20 says. Where there's forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Guys, this verse right here echoes the gospel. Jesus stands rejected so that we can be brought in and accepted. And how? By faith in His once and for all sacrifice. Did you hear it? It's by the blood of Jesus. And it's His blood that gives us the confidence we have to enter into the presence of God. It's what Christ has done. And in this moment, as the Father tears the curtain in two from top to bottom, it's a declaration that the sacrifices are finished. That God is testifying to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles and people like us That the way to God is no longer through a temple in Jerusalem, but it is through faith and repentance in the Son of God. Isn't that good news? You're not trying to figure out, how can I get to the temple? How can I make sacrifices? I can only come in so far because I'm not a Jew. Maybe even if you were a Jewish woman, you have these limitations. A Jewish man, you have limitations. Even if you're a priest. Hey, only so far. But when the perfect Son comes... And gives His life. And the Father accepts it. The temple curtain is torn. And the call is for whosoever will repent and believe on the Son. May come to the Father by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let the church say, Amen. What a moment. But guys, Amen, I hear it. Man, listen to those little voices. Listen. Amen. Listen to verse 51. God's not finished testifying. And behold, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split, right? It's a moment in which, again, the earth is shaking. Rocks are splitting. The sky has been darkened. God, guys, God is answering. He's showing us, right? This isn't just like simply, oh, mother nature doing our thing. I mean, there are absolutely natural laws that God has created and put in store for the universe. But I want you to realize that nothing in nature is out of the control of God. The psalmist himself declares in verse 6 and 7 of Psalm 135, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightning for the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. It says that the oceans and the very depths of the oceans, the clouds, the lightning, the rain, the waters, the wind, every natural force is under the authority of the sovereign God. Why am I showing you these? Because I want you to realize that these things are not accidental. They're happening around Jesus' death. God the Father is testifying. That's my son. That's my son. And listen to what happens. God's not finished because this amazing thing happens in verse 52 and 53. And I'm just going to tell you, these are further perplexing. But nonetheless, here they are. This is what the Word of God, the Spirit inspired Matthew to record. It says in verse 52, the tombs also were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So Jesus dies and people are raised. Old Testament saints. And they go into the, into the, into Jerusalem and people obviously see them. They appear to many. It's a challenging text. And as I studied this week again and again, just read more and more, I realized this. Nobody's certain what this means. We can ask a lot of questions, but I thought maybe two of them were were important that we ask. Number one, these people who had fallen asleep, you notice it says that they were raised and they come out of the tombs after his resurrection. I think a question we have to ask is, were they raised before or after Jesus' resurrection? Because from the text, it's not really clear. But I, I'm, I'm conv- if you pin me down, I'd say it's after. And, and the reason why is because notice what it says here. The tombs also were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection... So, that, so if they came out of the other tombs immediately after his death and people saw them, then I would think, well, it's clear that, that he came, that they were raised when Jesus died. But the reality is it says they came out of the tombs after his resurrection. So we have to ask then, if they were raised when Jesus died, did they like just hang around the tomb for three days? It, it doesn't seem really practical. Furthermore, I think scripture in Colossians chapter 1 verse 18 is just one passage I would point to where it says that Jesus was the firstborn from the dead, that he's the first to be raised. So because of this, I stand that my assumption is that this indicates that they were raised actually after Jesus is raised. You might say, well, why did Matthew put it here? Right. Well, I think clearly that Matthew's is to show that Jesus resurrection is unique. And this is a way in which to show us the power of Christ's death and his, resur- and his death and what he's accomplished. But I think a second question has to be raised from this text. Do they have glorified bodies or are they like Lazarus who is raised but dies again? Honestly, I don't know. And Matthew doesn't tell us. Uh, and maybe you would say, man, I would love to hear and study more on that. I, I'm not going to keep going into that, but I, I would love to sit down with you. Let's talk. Let's wrestle with scriptures. Let's, let's, let's talk about it. But maybe one thing that from the study that I had this week it, from one scholar, D.A. Carson, said here, and, and I want to maybe just make that clear as you wrestle with some really hard, challenging scriptures of what all this means. He says that these are clearly Old Testament saints who have lived prior to Christ, that are raised. Therefore, Matthew is telling us, among other things, that the resurrection of people who live before Jesus is as dependent upon Jesus' triumph as as the resurrection of those who come after Him. In other words, how are the Old Testament saints saved? They're saved ultimately by the death and burial and resurrection of Christ. The same way that you and I are saved. And this is that declaration, this moment, as they are being raised from the dead. It's a declaration that, yes, they have the Old Testament and the sacrifices, But all of those sacrifices pointed and looked forward, their hope was in a perfect once and for all sacrifice, even if they saw it from afar and couldn't understand fully what hope this is. All this moment of rocks shaking, tombs opening, it reminds me, uh, this last winter we had a snow and uh, man, I enjoy the snow, I like getting to go out and uh, behind our house we, we have a little pond, it usually doesn't hold much water and it maybe had an inch or two in it and but nonetheless, there was enough with ice. And so I can kind of begin to slowly walk out on that bad boy. Right. Boom, boom, boom. And it wasn't two or three steps in. I start to hear cracks. Right. And take a couple steps more. And before I know it right, it's broken open. And I see the little bit of the muddy water that's there beneath me. Why? Because the ice couldn't support my weight. I think in this reminder of this moment when the earth is shaking, it's a reminder that the earth can't Cannot take on the weight of God's glory. The weight of this moment that there is a son of God dying. The earth is shaking. It can't absorb how great this God is, this moment of divine judgment and the weight of Christ's glory. God is testifying to us through these supernatural events that the death of Jesus breaks the power of death. As we sang earlier, death gives way to death. Finished is the victory cry. This is the power of the cross. So we've seen now how Jesus' death deals with the judgment of God. How Jesus' death destroys the barrier that's between us and God. Yes, the barrier of the temple, but, or the temple curtain, but yes, the barrier of death that stands between us as these saints are raised. But finally now we turn to the misfits, the outcast, those at the back of the line. And what we hear from them is, is that Jesus' death is sufficient for the nations. We might say Jesus' death is sufficient for the least of these. Listen to what happens. Verse 51. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was what? Son of God. Truly, this was the Son of God. Right? Matthew doesn't want us to miss this moment. He's saying that everything here is pointing to this moment in which maybe the most of unlikely of people testifying to the true identity that Jesus truly is the Son of God. I mean, let's be honest, there's great irony in this moment. We talked about irony last week, but there's great irony in this moment. I mean, think back to the cross just last week here, verse 40, right? I mean, the statement was, if you are the Son of God, then come down from the cross and we'll believe you. The religious leaders are mocking him, saying, well, you know what? If God loves him, let him come for him. Why? He said, for if he said, I'm the son of God, like this mocking. And now here in this moment, we have this pagan, this Roman officer, this soldier. Confessing that Jesus is the true son of God. I think this moment tells us something more that if you want to see most clearly who Jesus truly is. Then look to the cross. Look to his suffering. See him there dying in your place, bearing the wrath of God for you and I. Guys, this is the hope for the nations, isn't it? I mean, this is a glimmer of what we're going to come to in Matthew 28. And then as we unfold in Acts, as the the nations are brought in, it's not just for the Jew, that this temple curtain tearing moment is not just for the people of Israel, but it's for people like us. This is the hope that we have. Matthew's saying and giving us this glimmer That there is hope for us who confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that whosoever will may confess Him and come to Him as Lord and Savior. Listen to how Jesus' burial takes place. Verse 55, there were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him even in that moment, right? It's a reminder that women in that day, their testimony wasn't accepted in court, right? So if you're wanting to make this more valid or more believable of a story, you put men there, not women, but in actuality, it makes it more believable because who would make that up? And here they are, right? As a reminder, like, isn't it a little bit telling that the disciples are nowhere to be found and yet it's these women? I think the women being present alongside the Roman soldier reminds us this gospel isn't for the look at me's, but for the least of these. I mean, doesn't it say that? I mean, you would think surely the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders who have studied the Torah and all the Old Testament and know the prophets, surely they recognize him for who he is. But I think this this just reminds us again that the gospel is not for the look at me's, but instead for the least of these. It says, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. We also learn from the other gospel accounts that he was also a part of the Sanhedrin, but he didn't give approval to Jesus' death. He was notice Matthew just says to us, he was also a disciple of Jesus. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there, sitting opposite the tomb. It's a moment in which it reminds us that as the, the, the confessions and the creeds may be their one in First Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus was crucified according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and then on the third day he was raised again according to the Scriptures. This is a moment in which to say to us, he really died. It gives us a glimmer or maybe just a a precursor of what's coming as we see Mary Magdalene, the other Mary that's sitting there. They recognize they're not going to the wrong tomb on Sunday morning. They know exactly where he's been buried. Jesus really died. He's in a real tomb. And despite the greatness of his death, most people are missing it. I think this serves as a warning so that we don't miss it. That although we may be those who know the most about Jesus, do we truly know him? In other words, Bible knowledge doesn't equal salvation. What we need, guys, is not just simply explanation, but we need revelation. We need the work of the Holy Spirit to help us understand and begin to believe that these words that we're reading are truly the words of God. And he is the true Messiah and Savior. We must be on guard that we aren't deceived into thinking that we understand the gospel when we don't. I don't want any of us to be confused. There's no good works. There's no Bible knowledge. Not even your church attendance today here will earn your acceptance before God. So what about you? Do you know about Jesus or do you know Jesus? Maybe as you read the word and hear this hope, do you come to the place of that Roman soldier of just crying out, truly, this is the son of God. That's my only hope of salvation. Is your heart stirred to worship him this morning? Maybe in this crowd today, there's still skeptics. You haven't yet come to the place of believing that Jesus is truly who he says he is. You're not convinced that he's the son of God. I think this passage here maybe reminds us of two different ways to approach God. You can continue to come in your own good works, believing the lie that God will, his love will somehow win out in the end, right? That God's a God of love and he'll accept everybody. If that's the case, then must we ask from this question, this question from this moment, then why did even the sinless Son of God cry out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guys, when the Son of God took on our sin, there was a moment there on that cross that we can't comprehend of Him being forsaken. And if you think that somehow you'll step into the presence of God and He's going to accept you, You're blind to the fact that you don't see your sin for what it is and the holiness of God for what it is. I want to compel you if you just keep trying to do it on your own, right? I mean, think about those two different paths. If you go to the Buddha scriptures, it was Buddha and his dying words. It said this, strive without ceasing. In other words, there's never going to be any peace, but you just keep working as hard as you can to try to get to that place. But when you come to the cross, it's not strive without ceasing. The Son of God said, it is finished! Which of the two are you hoping in? Your own works or the finished work of Christ? To the believers among us, to the church, we hope in these words today, don't we? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not because they are easy, but because they are gloriously messy. Because Jesus utters these words in our place so that we never have to. Jesus is forsaken by the Father. So listen to this. So today in your dark moment, in your hard moments, you will never know what Jesus knew. Therefore, you by grace know this truth. I will never leave you, nor will I ever, what, forsake you. Why do you know that truth? Because the Son of God was forsaken in your place that you would never be forsaken. Hallelujah. Jesus experiences the wrath of God for us, and He's not comforted by His Father. That is hard to watch. That is hard to bear. But that is also gloriously messy. Why? Because we might share at a funeral the hope that we have of those that we love that have died. This truth of Second Corinthians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. It's the hope of the gospel. The Son of God is not comforted in His moment as He becomes and takes on the weight of our sin. And yet we are comforted. It's the hope of what Christ has done. What love. Guys, we started this morning with a reminder about death. And as we shared that definition of death, we wrestled with the tenets of the fact that death is permanent and irreversible. This is what makes it so hard. And yet into this moment, there comes hope. There's one who can face death and conquer it. And Lord willing, if we come back next week, we are going to see on that Sunday morning the hope of the resurrection. So might I ask you today or challenge you to go home and talk with your spouse or maybe with children or grandchildren, maybe to have a conversation with a friend or coworker this week. The question that we've been kind of wrestling with our boys, it's this. What is our only hope in life and death? Think about that for a moment. What is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is, as Christians have been confessing for centuries, that we are not our own, but belong to God. It is the hope today for you in your life, and it is the hope that we have in our death, that we are not our own, but belong to God. Let's go compel our children, our grandchildren. Let's go compel our neighbors and our friends. I want to challenge you this week. Have that conversation. What is our only hope in life and death? That we are not our own, but belong to God. Do you? Do you belong to him? Then you can have no, there's no fear in death. This is the power of Christ. He's taken the sting of death and the weight of God's judgment away by His substitutionary death on the cross. Would you today repent and put your faith in Him? And believer, today, if that is you, then rest in Christ crucified. Hope in Him is the good news of the Gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give You praise for Your Word and the truth of the Gospel, the hope that we have that there is a God who loves us infinitely so that You would send Your only begotten Son. Father, we just admit that we're sinners. That we're separated from You. That we enjoy darkness and not light. I just pray, God, asking that You would just You would forgive us. You would cleanse our hearts, our desires. You would restore us to the likeness of Christ that we might follow and obey Him. Lord, thank you this morning that it's not just be me up here trying to give an explanation. But Lord, as I'm doing my best, I am dependent upon the revelation from your Holy Spirit. So I just pray even now that your spirit would continue to do the work in the hearts and minds of those who are here and have heard your word. Strengthen us now, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Todd Young with Greensburg Baptist Church. Thank you for joining us today. If you've accepted Christ during today's podcast, we would love to hear from you and connect you with a home church in your area. Or if you have questions regarding a relationship with Christ, Brother Blake and I would love to speak with you. Please contact us at the church office at 270-932-4495 or connect with us through our website at greensburgbaptist.com. In addition, you may visit our website anytime to access the sermon videos and podcast of any recent sermon. You may also subscribe to our podcast in the iTunes store. Have a great day today.